I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, 
for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Owe one, owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Our Father in heaven, we do pray for all of us now that you would tune our minds and our hearts to listen to your voice and be transformed by it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're dying to know what we're going to say about submitting to the government, a hot topic at the moment, um, just hold fire. That comes at the end of the passage. Uh, We will get there, but there are some other things which are also really important to dwell on uh, before we do get there. Let me say, if, you're just, if you just turned up to church for the first time in a long time or, or first time kind of looking into Christian things, um, the kind of big picture of the Christian life, and actually the big picture of the book of Romans, which we're in here, um, the big picture is just what Joe was praying, that we have some good news, some really good news. And the Bible's wonderful good news is that in Jesus, God has done everything everything necessary to make us entirely right with him. In dying on the cross for our wrongdoing, our rebellion against God, Jesus has solved a problem that we could not solve ourselves. Forgiveness forever for free is available in him alone. That was Romans chapters 1 to 11. That's the kind of great, great news we have. And we're now in the bit from chapter 12 onwards about how you respond to that. As 12 verse 1 puts it, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These weeks in this term in Romans are all about how we respond. But as we do that, it's really important that we realize this is not how do we do our fair share. It's not how do we meet the required quota of kind of contractual obligations. It's not what's the percentage of good works that we need to contribute to settle the deal of salvation. No. The joy of being a Christian is to know that it's already settled. We're already justified in the language of Romans. That is, uh, it's just as if I had led Jesus' life. In God's sight... By his mercies, we are perfect in Christ. We are clothed with his righteousness. We're already, we're already unshakably, unstoppably loved by God. Nothing can separate us from his love. And so chapters 12 to 16, therefore, can be glad response, grateful response of all life worship, Yes, living for God with everything we've got, all our bodies, all our minds, heart, soul, strength. We're sticking it all on the altar, but not to repay the interest on the massive moral loan we've taken out. Not to chip away at our debt before God. Chapter 11 ended with that question, who has ever given a gift to God that he might be repaid? No one. Certainly not Christians. He's written off the debt. He's credited us with Christ's account. And so in a sense of wonder 
and joy and humility. Well, we are to, to serve, verse, three, uh, verse 6, we saw that. We're to have a right view of ourselves, that's verse 3. And verse 9, and this is what's most important as we come into our passage, verse 9, let love be genuine. This is a morning thinking about love. How do we love each other as Christians? Uh, or if you're looking in on Christian things, what, what should a church community look like? What kind of community does this good news of Jesus produce? And the first thing I want to say is that love does not fit in neat boxes. I wonder if you noticed that from the reading. It's quite scattergun. Did you feel that? The the kind of commands from verse 9 onwards, and especially from verse 14, where our passage is starting today, they're just jumping around from situation to situation, from person to person. Who are we told to love here? Well, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Oh, okay, so, so we must be on to the bit about kind of enemies or or people who are opponents of Jesus. Then who's verse 15 talking about? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Oh, that sounds like a church family kind of verse. But then verse 17 seems to go back to the the enemies and those wronging us. What's going on here? It, It feels a bit kind of jumbled up. And that's particularly striking if you've been going through Romans in small groups all year, because if you were going to choose one word to describe how Paul writes and what kind of letter Romans is, I think jumbled would not be the one. He's not a kind of scattergun kind of guy. He's not a kind of stream of conscience what comes into my head kind of guy. So far, he's been forensically precise. He's answered a specific question with a specific answer. He's kind of siloed off little bits of his argument step by step. Now, well, things are overlapping. They're mixed up. They're jumbled together. Insiders and outsiders, family and enemies, happy and sad. A couple of weeks ago, I challenged some of the associates who are training here to, to break up this chapter 12 and, and give a title to each bit. And we found this bit really hard. So many different life situations are mixed together. But that is the point. You see, love does not fit in neat boxes. Nor does worship, actually, when it's all life worship. So our first point this morning is this. Love is not limited. Gospel-driven Christian love is not limited. Not limited by situation, not limited to certain kinds of people. The Christian question is not, what's the bare minimum of love I can get away with? What's the official line on, at Chalmers on how many hours to serve or how many pounds to give or how many attendances at church on average in a year or how many walks or calls am I required to take with small group members? That is just not a Christian way to think at all. That's not a mind that's being transformed by God's mercies. I've said before, God's not looking for us to offer our vocal cords or our ears for two hours a week on a Sunday. He says, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Genuine love doesn't fit in neat boxes. I think we know that from life, don't we? I mean, in a marriage when the husband and wife have started to tabulate how many hours each of them spends serving the other, well, that's lost gospel-shaped love, hasn't it? The gracious abundance of it. I just say, if that is you, if that's happened during lockdown, I think it's quite possible during lockdown that can happen where it's time for a reset this spring. 
Likewise, brothers and sisters in a blood family who are no longer willing to go the extra mile when someone's in trouble in the family. That's a family that started to become dysfunctional. And so with us as a church family, gospel love must not be limited. We're not just ticking the box that says I serve. We're genuinely caring for one another's welfare. Weeping together, rejoicing together, sharing life, not just activities. And that kind of love doesn't stop at the church walls or the garden just out there. Which brings us to verse 14 and our first specific example. Verse 14 shows us love's not limited because it's not even limited to our friends. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now, with all these commands, they're much easier said than done. It's easy to say it up here. If you're someone who's experienced this being cursed or persecuted, if you've ever been picked on, called, on, called names, been the butt of an office or a school or a sport team joke for being Christian, more seriously, if you've been misrepresented or maligned in the press, or if you've lost a job or promotion for being openly Christian, for expressing Christian values morally, you will know how brutal it feels. And I'm not making up those examples. They're from here, not from somewhere else. When we're wronged, every instinct in us is to fight back. We just want to give back as good as we get. We want want to use the same unfair tactics and unkind language that folk are using against us. I think that's even true with, with the relatively minor persecution we've been facing in the West in recent decades. But of course, there are there are churches across the world many of whom we're praying for and we're involved in supporting, who are actively being opposed and threatened regularly. They live with the threat of, of violence or pressure or persecution, whether from authorities or extremist groups. Just imagine if your family had been interrogated or, or physically threatened because you're a Christian. Or just imagine if you'd been disowned by your family by becoming a Christian a friend of mine in London had that situation. He was from um, a Muslim background and became a Christian. He used, to, he used to get verbally attacked on the street when he walked down his old road. Or if church members had lost their lives to bombs or attacks or beheadings. It's a lot easier said than done to just say, bless those who persecute you, bless them, do not curse them. But of course, Paul's not naive saying this. He himself had been bloodied and beaten and imprisoned enough to know it's not easy to suffer injustice and persecution. We might be thinking, well, how's it possible? I mean, give us some help, Paul. And he's going to in verse 19. We're going to get on to that bit. But, but before we get there, he jumps to another group because we need to know that, that love is not limited. Gospel-driven love is not limited to one particular group of people. It's not just to those who attack us. But verse 15, a different group. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Or in other words, gospel-driven love is not limited to those who are sad and not limited to those who are happy. Why do we need to spell this bit out? What does Paul need to? After all, haven't we already said, back in verse 5, we're all members of one body. 
Of course, we're, we're, it's obvious that we should care about how each other are doing, whether we're riding high or we're struggling in the pit. I mean, again, do we really need to be told this, Paul? Yes, yes, we do. I don't know about you, but, but I was saying last week, in the West, I think it doesn't come naturally for us to think of ourselves as part of other people, part of a body, part of a corporate group. We're used to thinking individually. When people ask how we are, we're so used to saying fine, even if we're not. Because if I'm not, it's kind of my business, and I should be the one to deal with it. I'll deal with it myself. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I think it might be especially the case at the moment because we've been rubbing shoulders much less with each other. We're less in each other's lives naturally. Easy to get closed in, focused on our own circumstances. Think we can't reach out for help. So I've been reflecting on this. I think both halves of verse 15 are a challenge. Maybe to different people. I think they've both been to me. So let me ask, how do we find it? Both rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. So corporately, in our church life, whether from the leading up front or the conversations afterwards or what goes on in small groups or walks and catch-ups, in our church life, do we give permission for people to be happy and for people to be sad? When we ask that how-you-doing question, are we up for someone revealing that actually they're more dispirited and in a mess than things may appear? Or possibly really upbeat about something. That while we might not be feeling great, actually they may be having a great week, full of thanks and joy. What would it mean in practice? Well, I think in our small group and Zoom times, it's often about how, how much we stick our neck out when we share prayer requests, how honest we are with other people. And as other people stick their necks out, how, how much we encourage that, kind of are thankful for that. Um, and my experience of Zoom, I don't know about you, but I find Zoom to be like a... For, Zoom is to relational warmth what a black hole is to kind of light. It just sucks it all in. It just kind of all disappears down the plug hole. So, so even if we think we're being quite warm, we might need to turn up the volume a bit on thank you so much for sharing. I think it, it's good to encourage one another, and it's hard to at the moment online. But let's help people know that, that when we're sharing how we're doing and sharing prayer points, we do not need to pre-filter through a grid of kind of acceptable steadiness. It's okay to be happy. It's okay to be sad. Godliness does not always mean five out of ten. I think the sharp end, as we listen to others sharing how they're getting on, I think the sharp end can be when someone's experience of joy is not one that I currently share but I would love to share. So if I'm currently unemployed and just longing for a job, can I rejoice when someone in the small group gives thanks for their job or even explains they've just got a better one? If we're single, can we rejoice in the news of an engagement or a marriage? If we'd love to have a child or another child, are we able to rejoice with those announcing a pregnancy or a birth? If we're widowed, are we able to rejoice in the anniversary of other older couples as they celebrate together? That kind of love, it's not, it's not easy, it's not natural. It takes supernatural transformation. It, it takes gospel-driven love. But it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, a church family that 
where we take joy in the joy of others, even if it's not what I share or feel right now. It's a beautiful thing. I know for Jesse and me, it was a huge, it was a huge battle line when, when we thought our childlessness was permanent. Mother's Day, could we rejoice for other people's families? To be honest, it's still a battle line when it comes to health. In some ways, it's a smaller thing, but with her long-term illness, when we hear how active and full other people's lives are, how much capacity they have to serve, or just how much fun they have, are able to have, and still do everything else, will we rejoice with those who rejoice? Rather than just thinking, when will it be my turn to have that good news? Verse 10 put it like this, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, and now rejoice with those who rejoice. And only the gospel can get us doing this. But likewise, weep with those who weep. I'm encouraged, actually, for us as a church family. I think, I think we do help each other lament. Um, there's, there are some churches you, you go to who haven't sung a sad song or a reflective song for 50 years since the music style changed. Actually, it's good for us, as we look at different bits of the Bible, to sing different kinds of songs that match it. It's good for us to acknowledge that the world is full of groaning, a church that's always, let's put our smiles on for Sunday, is a church that leaves suffering people on the edge. So I'm encouraged by that. I, I, think, um, I think maybe the, the challenge for us is, is to keep giving people permission to, to say when they're not coping. It's more in the kind of interpersonal stuff. And let me just say, if you are struggling with sin and you feel like you're not winning... Or if you're emotionally exhausted and finding yourselves breaking into tears throughout the day and you haven't told someone. Or if you just feel desperately alone. I really hope we feel free to speak up. I actually expect there'll be a number of people in those kind of categories after a year of pandemic stress and isolation. And wonderfully, people do sometimes reach out. Sometimes people say something to a friend or a small group leader or an elder, and we're so glad when they do. God wants us to be interdependent. He wants us to worship that way. But sometimes people who are mourning or grieving or weeping, sometimes they just don't have the strength to cry out for help. Sometimes they, they're not able to, to organize their own care package. So let's be proactive. Let's Let's be intentional, genuinely look out, reach out to see if folk are okay if we haven't seen them for a while. And as part of that, let's stick with people for the medium and long haul, not just that initial difficulty. Those who've been bereaved and suffered grief know it doesn't just go away. It doesn't go away after a few weeks. It changes shape, but it doesn't go away. We learn to live with it, but the sorrow is still there. And so how precious is it that the gospel-driven love from a church family that, that says, I'm willing to stick with you through this, all the way through. Keep checking in. Keep seeing how things are this week, this month, this year, this decade. And actually, one of the joys of serving at Chalmers, and I'm not just saying this, one of the joys is there are loads of people who do this, both in formal roles and informally, 
something that really struck me, actually, when I moved up here. It's a privilege to witness. It's just this wonderful care, this concern for people struggling. There are a number of people laying down their lives to, to stick with those who are, who are grieving and weeping. But actually, as we grow as a church, God willing, as we grow numerically, God willing, as a church over coming years, we don't just need a few people with that mindset. We need it to be a whole church willingness to weep with those who weep. I mentioned last week that the natural reaction to someone who's really suffering is to feel awkward, to not really know what to do, especially if it's serious or crippling or sustained, especially if it's affecting mental health. Often we can withdraw without even kind of meaning to or planning to because we just don't know what to say or what to do. And that can make the loneliness of suffering even more lonely. So actually it's a wonderful thing when the gospel says to us, let's go into lives where there's pain and hurt and grief. Not just one-off visits, but sustained friendship. Time to move on, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. I love this verse because it shows us that it's not just love to the people we find it easy to get on with. We saw in verse 3 that all of this service of others comes from a right view of ourselves. And there's a reminder here, the way we can work for harmony is, is to not be haughty, not be proud, but associate with the lowly, not be wise in our own sight. So much disharmony can be caused in a church family. If I always think I'm right, or if I look down on others, or if I'm only interested in those who I see as peers or are more impressed by, now, church families is one where we're, we're willing to associate with anyone. I mean, at the moment, it is the kind of, um, who, who, who are we going to have for that first walk or first cuppa in the garden? If there are some people we think, well, I'm really not itching to chat to that person. And if we suspect that everyone feels that about that person, well, maybe they should be top of the list. It's a wonderful thing when you see in a church family two people who in the world would never be sitting together and they are chatting away from the very old to the very young to the, the very educated or rich or powerful to the very not. It's wonderful that the gospel achieves this. And verse 17, it's not limited to church alone. Verse 17 goes back to those who are attacking us. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, sometimes we do need to apply those verses to Christian relationships. Sometimes, knowingly or not, other Christians do treat us really badly. Sometimes we need to bear with each other in a church family. Sometimes, I think, with our guards down, we can be less gracious and kind in how we speak in a church than we are when we're out in the watching world. But nevertheless, I do think verses 17 and 18 begin to take us out to the workplace, to the neighborhood, to the sports club, to the school gate, to the coffee catch-up with, with someone who's not a Christian. And things can get rough. Last year, there was a student in Chalmers. He was lambasted and then dumped out of a WhatsApp group of course mates. And the reason? He, he just explained where he stood on an ethical issue. He's one of the gentlest guys I know. Christians can be sidelined or mocked, even when they're not being difficult. But whatever comes our way, we're not to respond in kind. We're to aim to be peacemakers. And I love the realism of verse 18. Um, if possible, 
so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When we lived in a block of flats in London, um, one of our neighbours took the hump with us over something. Don't need to go into what it was, but uh, each year we used to go around and we we drop Christmas cookies and a flyer for the carol services of our church in, in front of every door, just in case anyone wanted to join us. And we knew this year that person would not want a flyer. And we kind of ummed and ahed. Do we just not give them cookies? We thought, no, it's, it's good. We don't want to leave them out. So we don't want to suggest that we're not happy. So we, we put some cookies in front of their door, um, thinking, got to be a peacemaker. And the next day, I opened our, our post box, and the cookies had been crushed through, through the little slit. They'd been crushed through, along with a quite aggressive note. I tried to go and chat. They, they didn't want to answer the door. It's tempting to think, right, I'm just going to give back as good as we get. But actually, our job is to be peaceable whilst being realistic, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, that's just cookies. It doesn't matter. What about about the really heinous wrongs? You see, there are churches um, around the world that have suffered terrible wrongs where terrorists have planted a bomb on an Easter Sunday or, or beheaded a group of pastors, or, or there's, there are churches where there's been terrible abuse that's happened of, of one sort or another. Is this just saying kind of forget about everything, just forget about it? Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Is it kind of saying you just forget about it? Don't worry about justice, just always show grace. Well, verse 19, both parts matter. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. This is how we can do verse 14, bless those who persecute you, by knowing that God will do justice. And this is our second big point. Christians should be gracious, not vengeful, because we know God will justly punish all wrong ultimately. It's really important that we don't take punishment into our own hands. We're not called to seek revenge. We're not to repay evil for evil. We're not not to seek to destroy the person who's been unkind to us. That's not to say that there will be no justice. In fact, it's precisely because I know there will be justice. The vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's precisely because I know that, that I don't need to take it into my own hands. God will justly punish all wrong ultimately. Let me just read verses 19 to 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we're actually going to hear more tonight from 2 Samuel about uh, not taking matters into our own hands, the temptation to, to take our own vengeance. Um, but the important thing to notice, both tonight and here, is that it's not that punishment is inappropriate, but that it's God's job rather than ours. That verse 19 is so key. Leave it to the wrath of God. We've seen that already in Romans, that that God is going to punish every single evil act in this world. Every single wrong thing his creatures have done. He's seen it all, he knows it all, 
and he's far more appalled than we are, far more disgusted, indignant (coughs) about the way people treat other vulnerable people that he has made. In his patience, he's holding back the full force of his judgment and wrath. He's giving people a chance to find forgiveness in the cross of Christ. But there will be an accounting, a day when every human being will be held accountable for what they've done. Chapter 2 described that as a day of wrath and fury. Every wrong is, has to be paid for, either on the cross in Jesus or on ourselves. I think in a, in a relatively stable, peaceful society like we have in the UK, I, I think it's, it's easy to feel like God's wrath is hard to love. Something we're not that proud of, something uh, to keep quiet about. I was chatting to someone this week, actually, who was saying that, that seeing God's wrath in his Old Testament quiet times, he was finding that hard to see. Actually, when you stop and think about it, God's wrath is actually a good thing. Because unlike our anger, it is perfectly just. It is a perfectly proportionate, settled, appropriate response to the abuses and injustices of our society. He's not flying off the handle. It's not fickle. But it is ferocious. And that actually is a good thing. Again, hard for us to to get our hearts around this. But it shows that God is not indifferent when he sees people being victimized abused, attacked, maligned. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders. He doesn't just say, what can you do? People will be people. No, that would be an amoral monster. But he is holy, pure, a burning, white-hot, consuming fire of moral purity. So God's wrath actually shouldn't be an embarrassment because it's the anchor point of a moral universe. If you take that away, human actions lose their significance. There's no accountability, no weighing of how serious wrongs and evils actually are. No answer to the cry of injustice. How can people get away with this? And the more convinced we are that that day is coming, as Jesus promised it is, the more actually we'll be freed to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us. We can show gracious love and kindness, feed him, give him something to drink. Jesus' own teaching was to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And on the cross, he modeled it when experiencing totally unjust suffering. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. See, he knew what these people would be facing and prayed for their salvation. That's the second point. Christians should be gracious, not vengeful, because we know God will justly punish all wrong ultimately. And I think this is, some, this is a place where the gospel has a much better solution than human cultures. It's a striking thing, actually. Uh, through centuries and through different global cultures, a, a, kind of a regular point in, in, um, in uh, cultural dramas has been revenge stories. Greek tragedies have it. 16th century revenge dramas have it, and Hollywood blockbusters have it. 
How many stories are one really angry, really wronged person wreaking vengeance on all their enemies? And there's a kind of visceral appeal to that, seeing wrongs righted. Except there's also an awareness that this is problematic. Because are we sure that this person's doing justice, or are they just really angry? And actually, what's going to happen to all the families of the people that this person has killed? Is it just going to lead to a retributive cycle of violence? Or the gospel of Jesus has a much better answer. Trust God to do justice. Proper, full-blooded, taking evil seriously, justice. That's point two. And now, finally, point three, which will be all too brief. Um, I'm expecting we might need to pick this up uh, more next week uh, as we turn to talk about the government, given how many questions there are at the moment um, around uh, uh, applying government guidance and regulations. Um, But I think that the question that leads from chapter 12 to chapter 13 is this one. Has God made no provision for justice in this world? Has God made no provision for justice in this world? Because from everything I've just said, it might say, um, whatever's happened, uh, whatever injustice or abuse or wrongdoing, uh, you just have to kind of not worry about it. It will be sorted out in the end. There's nothing you can say right now. Categorically, that is not what the Bible teaches. And let me just be clear. um, uh, Here at Chalmers and and, uh, biblically as Christians, we should engage with proper reporting procedures, whether that's workplace grievances or um, uh, safeguarding concerns. We should speak to authorities if we're aware of someone wronging someone else. And the reason we should do that is because authorities are God's gift to us. This is chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Point 3, Christians should obey and honor government because the state is God's gift for maintaining some level of justice even now. Do you see the link? God has given us the state to enable some level of justice even now. Authorities are God's gift. Now I'm aware, coming to the question of government at the moment, lots of us will have on our mind, well, what about when the government says something that contradicts the Bible? So what if the hate speech bill is used to criminalize some gospel proclamation? Or what if our freedom to meet fully as a church family or to sing is never restored or not restored in sensible time? Well, there is a clear thread in Scripture elsewhere that when there's a clash between something the government says and something the Bible says, we do have to obey God, not man. In Acts 4, um, the apostles kept speaking about Jesus even when they'd been told not to. But actually, at the moment, some of, the, um, uh, some of these specifics are complex, and Christians and churches will come to slightly different views on it. So it's a longer conversation, not for the last few minutes of this sermon. But actually, the major thrust of this passage, this particular passage, is not to focus on the exceptions or the bits where we might um, find it difficult to submit to the government, but rather to encourage us to submit to the government and honour those in authority, because the state is a gift from God. Let me just run through it very quickly. Uh, There are two big commands. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's one command. And verse 7, pay to all what's owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Those are the two sides. Submit to the government, 
honour the government, that is, do what they say, and speak about them with respect. That's the Christian call. And we find that really hard. I've known that I was going to be preaching on this passage, and over the last month I've caught myself so many times about to say something that might dishonour the government in the way I speak. It doesn't say we have to agree with everything, every policy, every stance, but we do have to respect in how we speak. Let me say, the Emperor Nero of Rome wasn't exactly a kind of champion for Christian values. They wouldn't have agreed with everything in his policies or his personal life. But here we are in a letter to the church in Rome saying, submit to and honour the authorities. Don't slag them off. Respect. In our highly anti-authority culture, this is so different, isn't it? So many will be bad-mouthing the government, disobeying what they say as long as the police aren't looking. So many think it's fine to decide for myself if a speed limit applies to me in this particular time of the day or context. So many are trying to get away with not being entirely honest on tax declarations or ignoring aspects of legislation we don't like. It's just the way the world operates. But Romans 12.12, we're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed to worship God. And so, as I crawl along the road at 20 miles an hour in South Edinburgh, or sit in a freezing cold garden, not this weekend, but but many previous ones, chatting to someone who could easily have popped inside for a brief cuppa with the windows open, as, as most of our congregation are absent and down the camera, it's good to remember that we are submitting to the government in worship of God. How can that be? Well, because God put them there. End of verse 1. There's no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. God put these rulers in place, even the flawed ones. And actually, a flawed government is better, way better than no government at all. Anarchy is the worst of all worlds. You can see that in failed states and civil war states. No one to defend the weak, enact justice. No one to hold people accountable. Verse 4 puts it really strongly uh, that, that the ruler is God's servant for your good. He is the servant of God, an avenger for who carries out God's wrath and the wrongdoer. So striking, isn't it? Especially when we've seen chapter 12. We are not to take vengeance into our own hands. Actually, God has given authority to the government to hold people accountable. And that does include non-Christian governments. Actually, when I stop and think about it, as a pedestrian and a cyclist and a father and a husband, and actually even as a driver, I'm glad there are speed limits. Glad there are road laws. It would be chaos without it. And actually, I'm hugely thankful for a nation where we all pay taxes to enable healthcare to be affordable like, to people like us. I'm hugely grateful there's a court system that holds people to account for their criminal action. I'm grateful there's employment legislation to protect worker exploitation. I'm even grateful for a coordinated response to COVID-19, even if I wouldn't always make exactly the same individual calls. See, government is a good gift from God. As we grapple, and on this I close, as we grapple about what to do in the election, 
And maybe you look through the choice of candidates and feel slightly pessimistic, or maybe you look at the polls and feel pessimistic about what the result will be. But here's an encouragement. God will still be the one providing the government to us. He's in charge of what happens. That's why we pray regularly for our rulers and our governments. What happens when the state actually starts persecuting Christians actively? Well, then we go back to chapter 12 and bless those who persecute us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder that love does not fit in neat boxes. And we've covered many different areas this morning, and we pray for each of us that where our heart needs to be transformed to worship you in one of these areas, we pray you would be shaping us and changing us by your spirit, by your mercies. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.